This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This is The Feed, York Region's longest-running and exclusive news magazine. Welcome, I'm Ann Romer. Coming up on the show, new online safety rules, provincial funding for post-secondary, and Girls' Night Out ahead of International Women's Day. But we begin with infection prevention. Ontario's top doc is warning public health agencies to prepare for potential outbreaks of measles. There are just a handful of cases in Canada right now with a few already confirmed here in Ontario. So if the numbers are not yet in the double digits, should we worry about measles? Dr. Danny Chen, physician lead in infection prevention and control at Mackenzie Health, is our guest. He's here to give us the straight talk about one of the most transmissible infections in the world, measles. Welcome to the feed, Dr. Chen. It's really good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. So what exactly is measles? Well, uh, measles is a highly contagious viral infection. Uh, It's vaccine preventable. It used to be very common in Canada up until around 1970. And uh, by that time, routine childhood vaccination had been in place. um, And eradicated measles acquisition in Canada by 1998. And it's making a comeback, and I understand the numbers are quite high in Europe, and it's creeping its way into the Canadian landscape. Why is it so highly transmissible? It's very transmissible, as you as you said. Uh, it spreads very easily from person to person through the air. So droplets of secretions of, of smit, spit and snot from, from the nose, mouth and throat of an infected person uh, gets spread into the air through talking, coughing, sneezing. And then those virus particles in the air get inhaled or contact the nose, mouth or eyes of somebody else and infects them. And on top of that, the, the measles virus can actually persist in the air for up to two hours so that it can still be there even after the person who's infected has left that space. And then on top of that, probably less common than, than through the air, the virus can also spread uh, through contact with contaminated items. So if, if there's coughing or sneezing onto a door handle and then touching of the handle and then touching of the eyes, nose or mouth, it, it can also spread that way. And why are we so concerned about our children contracting measles? What, what's the problem? What are the signs and symptoms, the treatment, the recovery? Yeah, I think um, basically people these days don't have any experience with measles because there have been so few cases, because it was so well controlled with the routine childhood vaccination programs that we had in place. But um, measles... Um, In the beginning, when you first get measles, it's not particularly different from other kinds of viral infections in the beginning. So some fever, cough, runny nose, red watery eyes causing some sensitivity to light, maybe some white spots in the mouth. And then a couple of days after that, you get this the the classic rash. So it's a red blotchy rash starting sort of from the head and then spreading down to involve the body, arms, and legs. And... Um, on, on average, the, the people feel sick for about 10 days, and, and most actually do get better, but, but there are significant complications associated with this, so it's not just a benign illness. 
And there's data from the U.S. saying that about, about one in five people who get measles will end up in hospital. And they get complications like ear infections, like lung infections, like pneumonia, like diarrhea. Measles itself causes the body's immune system to be lowered, to become weaker, so that that person with measles is prone to other infections. And um, this can lead to other complications that are more severe, things like the lungs failing, so, so, so um, the person can no longer breathe properly, there's respiratory failure. It can lead to um, inflammation of the brain. This occurs about one in a thousand people with measles end up with inflammation of the brain, which can cause brain damage, can lead to blindness, deafness. Uh, and then overall, there, there is a significant death rate associated with measles. It's estimated that between one and three per thousand cases of measles end up with, with uh, um, a, a, a mortal outcome. And, and that's mainly related to problems with the lungs or with the brain. And that's, and, and that's kind of the acute measles. So when somebody gets measles, these are kind of what can happen. But there are also late complications. So measles, seven to ten, seven to ten years after having measles, there's a, there's a degenerative brain condition called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis that occurs, um, especially in kids who get measles before age two. And this leads to behavioral problems, intellectual deterioration, seizures, and, and death. So certainly not just um, a benign condition, lots of potential complications both up front and down the road, especially bad in young kids, um, especially those who are less than, less than five, um, especially bad in those who have poorly functioning immune systems, those who are immunocompromised, and also more severe and, and significant complications in, in pregnant women. Um, so at risk for more severe disease and these complications, but also premature delivery and, and miscarriage. So let's go down the vaccination road right now. So this is a highly transmissible viral, viral infection that is preventable through vaccination. Is that, am I correct in that? Yes, absolutely. And, and we have good proof of that with our vaccinations programs that have been in place uh, and, and really have only sort of um, become less efficient related to the, uh, related to the COVID pandemic. But uh, the, the MMR vaccine, which is a combination vaccine which includes measles, um, has been very effective um, with one dose providing in the, in the range of 95% protection against infection and two doses uh, likely in the range of 99% protection. So this is a vaccine that's been around a long time. We have real-world data showing its safety and effectiveness. Uh, and... Um, it's only now that vaccination campaigns have sort of uh, had their resources drawn away from them related to the COVID pandemic that um, we see this drop in vaccination rate leading to uh, increased measles cases around the world. So you've just confirmed that there's been a decline in vaccinations since the pandemic, including measles. In fact, an Angus Reid survey that was released earlier this week verifies that. The, their headline was parental opposition to childhood vaccination grows. So that's a really difficult because we've got the philosophical and ethical 
feelings about vaccinations, but then we've got the hard true facts that they do work to prevent the spread of things like measles. Where do you stand when it comes to telling and advising the population to think about vaccination when it comes to measles, particularly with our young ones? Well, I think, you know, we have a a special obligation to our young ones because they are not necessarily able to make the decisions on their own at that time. So it's a, it's an extra responsibility for us to protect them as best we can. And for preventable illnesses, uh, you know, I I think it is a matter of uh, weighing risks and benefits. And as I said, we have lots of experience with this vaccine proving its safety and efficacy. And so really um, there isn't a need to take a risk uh, from measles. Um, And I think it can be difficult for people to sort of um, appreciate the risks because it's not an illness that we've had to manage or have personal experience with in, 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 in recent memory, but we have, um, and so that makes it difficult uh, to sort of uh, put some of these decisions uh, in context. And I think part of the issue too is that um, with COVID, there has been an amplification of the anti-science and anti-vaccine voices, um, part of which are just opposition to um, government sort of directives. And I think if you if you take that emotion out of it and, and just present it as we have a preventable illness, we have a proven safe vaccine, uh, we have an, an illness that can cause significant severe consequences um, that can be long-term, brain damage, blindness, deafness, um, and, and potential long-term consequences as well, and, and death, of course, uh, as, as an ultimately bad outcome. I think um, it becomes clear that that vaccination is the way to go. Dr. Teresa Tam earlier this week said that spring travel could bring forward more measles cases here in Canada. What can you add to that, Dr. Chen? I think that's that's one of the reasons why measles is getting much more attention now, is that uh, we we only have a handful of cases so far in Canada. But I think the key is that it's so far. The, the issues related to vaccination are not unique to Canada, and we are quite fortunate that we've had a very effective public health system for a long time. And so even though some of the resources were drawn away from public health during uh, from public health in regards to childhood vaccinations and diverted to COVID, we still have quite a, a good framework and system in place. Other countries and other regions of the world are not nearly so lucky, and so um, they have never. There are places that have never eradicated measles, uh, and then on top of that, um, I think our messaging around vaccination has been consistent. Whereas in other countries, they've they've had even more difficulty with the uh, sort of anti-science and anti-vaccine voices that 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 came to the f- uh, forefront more prominently during COVID. Um, so, with measles um, sort of becoming more common in other parts of the world, with March break and anticipated travel uh, likely to occur, there will likely be. Um, cases of measles that are imported from other places around the world into Canada. And if we have a 
larger number of um, um, kids who are vulnerable to measles, then the concern is that we will then have ongoing transmission within Canada. So I think um, I think that's why Dr. Tam has has raised the alert. Um, it's that we have potentially increasing numbers of people who are um, at risk for getting measles, and we will likely have more imported cases as uh, as there is more travel around uh, around March break. Dr. Danny Chen, I've got to thank you very much for joining us on the feed. Great information. You are physician lead in infection prevention and control at McKenzie Health. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. Coming up next on the feed, billions for colleges and universities. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. The province announced earlier this week that it would be investing close to $1.3 billion to stabilize Ontario colleges and universities, adding that the tuition fee freeze would remain in place in an effort to, quote, keep costs down for students and parents. Ontario's Minister of Colleges and Universities, Jill Dunlop, joins us now with more. Minister Dunlop, welcome to the feed. So, what exactly is meant by stabilizing colleges and universities, and how will this money achieve that? Well, hi, Anne. It's, uh, it's great to be joining you today. And earlier this week, I made a uh, historic announcement, $1.3 billion in new funding for post-secondary education. And this is the biggest injection into post-secondary education that we've seen in more than a decade. Minister Dunlop, the opposite of stable is unstable. So what is the situation right now in Ontario colleges and universities that has prompted your government to try and stabilize the situation? Well, thank you for the question. It's, it's a great one. And, you know, there we haven't seen this injection of funding into post-secondary education in more than a decade. So, you know, we recently released the recommendations from the Blue Ribbon Panel, and so this is why I was making the announcement at this time. Um, you know, the announcement of $1.3 billion in new funding, it, you know, there's several components of that, $903 million specifically to a post-secondary education sustainability fund. So each institution in Ontario is going to receive a portion of that funding. And we work directly with our institutions, so we know the financial health. We, we have matrix uh, that we we work with them, so we have a good understanding of that. The allocations for that won't specifically come out at this time because schools are working on their, their budgeting process. So that will be more of an individual process with the allocation. Um, another piece of the $1.3 billion is $100 million for uh, you know, approximately 13,000 STEM seats in this province. So you know, huge in-demand jobs, and this is a, a priority for this government to ensure that the programs that we are offering at colleges and universities meet those labour market demands you know, across Ontario. Mental health is a big issue for a whole lot of Canadians, including our students, but even staff at colleges and universities. So $23 million is being earmarked to enhance mental health supports. How important is that in your view? Oh, it's so important. I can tell you, you know, from a, a personal story, you know, my, 
I have daughters. I have one daughter who's currently in a university, and I've seen the impact. And you know, I look at this cohort of students. So they've been through the college and university system during COVID. So they they started school when it was completely online, a completely different experience. So you know, the we want to ensure that students have the best support possible in their their post secondary journey, and that's why this the announcement I had uh, for earlier this week wasn't just the, the funding piece and the allocation of $1.3 billion and the specific $23 million to mental health, but also the part of the larger announcement with uh, legislation. And we have, in the legislation, will be mental health uh, framework at all campuses. So the, you know, the government funds the institutions uh, with mental health supports and everyone, you know, use that money accordingly, but we're, we're asking the institutions to have a framework in place so that students know where to go to find and understand the supports that are available to them on campus. So I want to have some fun right now, and it really isn't, but I'm just, I'm, I'd like to talk to you right now about the economics 101 part of this. So here on one side, we've got you extending the tuition fee freeze here in Ontario. How does that sit with the federal government's recent hard cap on the number of international students allowed into Canada. So as a result of that, Ontario's allotment has been cut in half. So how do we make dollars and cents and any sense of all of this? Well, that was obviously a consideration on the uh, the funding because, you know, we acknowledge that universities and colleges, and as I said, there has not been an increase of funding in over a decade, and that's why we wanted to provide this funding to give these schools uh, predictability and the stability as they they plan in the coming years. So, of course, the recent announcement by the federal government we know is going to have an impact just as the past years with COVID have. So this was, you know, government's uh, shared responsibility to step up and ensure that we are giving the colleges and universities the adequate funding. But I think what's really important for for the taxpayers is that, and, you know, I'm accountable to the taxpayers as well, is uh, an efficiency fund that we have set up for the, the college university to apply to. So this is a $15 million fund that will help universities and colleges to do third-party audits to help find those efficiencies. We really want to work closely with them to ensure that you know, they are providing um, the best possible education uh, to, to all Ontario students. Um, and being accountable to the taxpayers and to the students as well. So in other words, transparency is what you're looking for from colleges and universities. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that's also part of the legislation that we introduced earlier this week with tuition fee transparency. So we are asking institutions that when they post their tuition, they post all additional costs. That could be the ancillary fees uh, that students are paying, but also when they post the information for courses. We want students to know upfront the cost of textbooks. If there's going to be any additional costs for subscriptions for the course or costs for um, additional lab material. So I want students to know upfront what it is that they're paying in tuition and the programming and how their hard-earned dollars are being spent. You have one child still in university. Will she notice the difference that this money is going to make while she's there? Well, my daughter is graduating uh, this April. so. We have seen the impact of the tuition freeze under the leadership of Premier Ford, but it's exciting to see that for another three years, those students are also going to see that, that impact. It's so important for students and families. You know, we acknowledge there's an affordability crisis right now. It's, it's expensive to, to heat, to eat, rent, and 
it was, I'm excited that we were able to make this announcement and ensure that tuition will be froze for another three years for students and their families. Jill Dunlop, Ontario's Minister of Colleges and Universities, thank you so much for spending time with us on the feed. Thank you so much, Dan. Meanwhile, the federal government is tackling online hate. Glenn Perkins with Media Reaction. The federal government has introduced Bill C-63, the Online Harms Act. The legislation will regulate dangerous content on the Internet in an attempt to protect children and other vulnerable Canadians. To give us his reaction to the new bill, we are joined by Matt Hatfield, the executive director at Open Media. Matt, welcome to the feed. Hi there, thanks for having me. Matt, before we talk about the bill, give me the background on Open Media. What's the role of the organization? So we're a citizen digital rights group. We work to make the internet a better place for ordinary folk, to protect people's privacy, to protect our freedom of expression online, and to make the internet a, a more affordable, more welcoming space for everyone. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau first pledged to introduce the Online Harms Act, or Bill C-63, following the 2021 federal election. It's been more than two years in the making. What's your reaction to this legislation? I think those years have paid off. Um, I think this is a much better bill than what they first proposed in 2021. So there's still some areas we think need further attention. Uh, but a lot of the mistakes that looked like they were going to make are fixed. What areas in particular? So one good thing is all private communication is totally scoped out. Uh, the bill does not apply if you're messaging with your friends. Uh, another good thing is that for obligations to take down content, it's really only for a very narrow set of content that's relatively easy to detect. So child abuse material and adult material that's being shared without the adult's consent, those two things will have a 24-hour takedown window. But all of the other things the bill covers do not have that kind of obligation. So no mandatory takedown. So let's talk about that. The bill mentions seven categories. Can you briefly explain what they are? Yeah, so a number of the categories we could broadly group under protecting children. It's things like protecting children from self-harm material, from sexual abuse material, and from bullying material. Some of that is new to this bill versus the first proposal, and so we're going to take a closer look at some of that and make sure that all lines up. But I think at least in, in purpose, those are all things most people would endorse. Uh, and then other areas are, are more similar to what was in the first proposal. So we have some targets that involve um, violent content or extremist content, as well as some coverage for uh, hateful online speech. You say that you're going to look at this further. Does it mean that this legislation doesn't go far enough? Uh, I think it means from our perspective, we need to be careful that it's actually accomplishing its purpose. So uh, no one likes hate speech, and most of us would disagree about whether a few pieces of content were or were not hateful. Um, we're obviously living in a world where after the attack on Israel and the invasion of Gaza, many people have seen things online they found hateful or felt advocated violence. But of course, it's really important that if this bill is going to lead to any prosecutions of people for content like that, that whatever is done is, is appropriate and uh, sort of scoped to the harm and uh, that it doesn't overstep and actually end up criminalizing protests or important social conversations. We mentioned that the Prime Minister first looked at this back in 2021. It's not been an easy process. There has been pushback and criticism from some quarters, hasn't there? Yes, and I think we were one of the loudest voices that criticized their initial efforts. Uh, I would say that was for good reason. Their first proposal had some pretty wild stuff in it. There were things like automatic reporting of a lot of content to law enforcement as soon as it was detected. 
and uh, platforms had to take down within 24 hours uh, a lot of more debatable content, things like that could be hate speech. But if, if you as a platform have to decide within 24 hours whether something is hate speech and take it down, the reality is you're just going to take a lot of stuff down. So we think this is a, a more careful bill that I think is closer to accomplishing its purpose appropriately. Not all social media platforms will have to follow the legislation. You mentioned WhatsApp and direct or private messaging on X and Instagram are not subject to the regulations. That's right. And so the primary uh, responsibility on platforms is to uh, sort of report on what they're doing to uh, mitigate risk and protect their users, to generate an internal plan, to share that plan with all of us, and to um, give us all an opportunity to assess what they're doing and, and see if it makes sense. So it won't be that the government will be forcing a particular solution on platforms, but they will be asking them to think about it and, and let us all know what their approach is. And we've heard in the news about online bullying that has led to young people taking their own lives, and this beefs up the protection for them, doesn't it? Yes, there is some targeting of that, and that's a new area that we're definitely going to spend the next few weeks studying closely. I think this is specifically aimed to some of those stories, as well as things like uh, people may know Facebook proved to know that Instagram was having a negative impact on young women's body image um, and did nothing about it. So platforms will be required to account for that when they assess risks on their platforms and let everyone know uh, what they're doing about it as well as how successful their efforts uh, have been to better protect users. Matt, how will this be policed? So that's a great question. There's going to be a new digital commission uh, that will oversee this with a few different levels. There will be an ombudsman that we can all... uh, register a complaint with, and uh, the commission will be able to issue takedown notices for the two types of content I mentioned, child abuse and images, as well as issue uh, fines or, or requests for people to take down identified hate speech. We haven't had anything quite like this in Canada before, uh, and that's where we need to take a really close look and, if necessary, put a few more safeguards on it to make sure that doesn't go awry, because it's, it's a lot of power, potentially. Social media is changing all the time. I would think that this legislation would also have to adapt to meet the demands, the needs. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the areas where asking platforms to develop their own risk plans and communicate them to us, that makes a lot of sense because no one knows what's going on on the platform as well as the platform does. Rather than writing kind of inflexible legislation that might not apply in the future, um, I'm sure platforms will continue to develop their risk plans and, and what they do around it. And, you know, the reality is some platforms may go too far, and we can see that as users and either criticize it or uh, or leave that platform if we're not happy. Uh, We can see some sort of innovation in what platforms do based off this model. Since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, a number of statements have been posted to various social media sites. Some people may say that what is written is controversial. Yes, certainly. And this is an area where I think uh, people who sympathize with both sides here have have found things that they thought were hateful or violent. Um, And also, we all understand it's really important for us to be able to discuss and debate um, issues like this. So I think that's going to be a key area that's going to get a lot of attention uh, over the next few weeks and months. And there may be amendments to the bill to better ensure that it supports full range of freedom of expression uh, while applying some consequences for people who are actually inciting violence. Matt Hadfield, Executive Director at Open Media, thank you for joining us on the feed today. My pleasure, anytime. After the break, invest in women, accelerate progress. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. 
Ann Romer, and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. International Women's Day. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. March the 8th is International Women's Day, a great opportunity to recognize, honor, and celebrate the power of women. These next few stories do just that. We begin with Jim Lang and the local group supporting women and raising awareness of human trafficking. Enough can't be said of the work being done in New York Region by the Elspeth Hayworth Center for Women. Their executive director is Sundar Singh, and she's the kind of unsung hero in New York Region who does such great work in the community. And just to know, coming up on Tuesday, March 5th, they're going to have a sip and support high tea with the proceeds going to support the Elspeth Hayworth Center for Women. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Ms. Sundar Singh. Sundar, how are you? I'm doing very well, Jeff. Oh, oh, very good. Um, the, the SIP and Support High Tea sounds exciting. Tuesday, March 5th, event taking place at the Costello Restaurante in Langstaff Road in Woodbridge. It's a great time to have high tea, which is a really cool tradition, but raise money for a great cause, and that's the work that you do with the Ellsworth Hayworth Center for Women. Yes, the, the um, event will start at 2.30 p.m., and it will go on till 5.30 p.m. We are grateful to Costello Restaurant restaurant that have opened up the space for us uh, to do the fundraising. Uh, the uh, dynamic women in Vaughan, they got together, they formed a strong committee led by Rina Pelletieri from RBC, and uh, uh, they, we are all organizing together to, to do this fundraising. It's a very, very important, very important um, um, uh, event, uh, the, the monies raised are going to um, build the sustainability of our programs. Uh, we are uh, serving young girls and creating uh, very um, active uh, you know, awareness among these gir- young girls about the vulnerabilities that they are, uh, you know, they may be facing in Canada. I mean, cases of human trafficking have been on the rise for the past six to seven years. You know, girls are targeted. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they were initially, they still are in the indigenous communities in a very large number. But with the influx of the international students coming, mainly from the South Asian communities, um, uh, they, they are now being targeted as well. So, uh, you know, we have seen st- statistics are very, very difficult to capture. Uh, about the human trafficking, but between 2011 and 2021, um, over t- over the 10-year period, there were 3,541 cases that were reported to the police about human trafficking. Uh, you know, that is about 350 cases each year. But that number has risen uh, in 2022. Um, uh, but because of the secretive nature of this um human trafficking, it's very, very difficult to measure how many uh, cases are are there. I guess I'm swayed by Hollywood movies, and I assume you say human trafficking. I imagine bad guys in a, a, a balaclava snatching a girl off the streets, and the studies have shown that sex traffickers are luring these young women using social media and online platforms, and we don't even realize it. We don't realize that these young girls who come from other countries uh, they use the social media extensively. They rely on people who are responding to their inquiries, etc. But they don't know who is at the other end. And uh, you know, we 
had cases where you know, they're lost. They're lost in the in the society, uh, you know, just because they are using social media and uh, just following the guidance of, you know, people who do not know who is at the other end, and these girls are taken away. And um, so the only way to control the exploitation of the young girls is to educate them with an approach to make young girls understand the trauma that trafficking causes in the lives of the girls. This is what we are doing at Aspathy World Center, and we're doing it very actively. International students are coming by the hundreds and thousands, although they're coming to Canada to help the economy in a strong way by helping educational institutions and business, retail shops, restaurants. The country's uh, economic potential has definitely increased, but the students face sexual harassment and are being lured into sex trade, human trafficking, and sex services. So um, they're feeling stranded and lost. And this is because the agents in the home countries, they mislead them about the life in Canada. They are told that, you know, Canada is the most beautiful place. The people are the most uh, lovely people here in Canada. But when they arrive here, they're seeking employment. They get exploited. Uh, rent is very high here. Finding housing is very, very difficult. Finding employment is very difficult. And, uh, you know, they have to work extremely hard to study. And, uh, each uh, girl that we talk to and we ask them, you know, what was their experience as soon as they landed in, in Toronto or in Canada? And uh, they talk about um, the experience was very difficult. It was extremely challenging and it was totally not what they were told back in their home country. You know, we try to reach out to these young girls. We have been for the past four years in a very active way during summertime when there are fairs and events going on where the students come to do volunteer work, etc. We try to reach out to them. It's very difficult to win their trust. You know, we are strangers. So we developed a strategy here at Alspathe where now we are taking students from colleges directly when they seek out uh, student placement. So right now we have 30 students and this gives us an opportunity to meet with them one-on-one -on -one and explain the, you know, their vulnerabilities, what can happen, what can develop and how they can be misled and taken off the path where you know, they came here to study and, uh, you know, and, and work. So we are, we are working with them to make them understand. We do workshops and, uh, you know, those girls who have had, you know, experiences where they have been led into, uh, or, uh, you know, exploitation, sexual exploitation, uh, almost into human trafficking. So they talk about their situation. And um, that helps the girls who, who are in uh, high schools. They come after, um, after school. Uh, and, you know, we have gathering, we do workshops, and um, uh, the message is going across, uh, not just for the international students, all the young girls um, who are in high schools and extremely vulnerable, they, they are now coming after school, and um, we are creating awareness. Speaking with Sundar Singh, the Executive Director for the Ellsworth Hayworth Center for Women, getting ready for their sip and support high tea taking place Tuesday, March 5th at the Costello Restaurante. And uh, Sundar, for us in the re York region, just going about our everyday lives, are there things we can look for? If we think, hey, I think that young girl is in danger, and maybe we can get some support and help for them. 
Absolutely, you can reach out to the girls and ask, you know, are you a newcomer in Canada? And if there is any support that you need, and, you know, here's a number that can be called, call the community centers. They are ready to help. You know, we, we've got some wonderful community centers in York Region. And, of course, Elspeth Hayward Center is also there uh, ready to help these young girls. And uh, our number, they can call 416-663-2978, 663-2978. That is the main line where the girls can call, reach out to to us if ever they need help. Food, uh, fresh food, vegetables, fruits, they are supplied every Thursday if anyone um, uh, in need for uh, food because they don't have enough money to, to pay for their living, they can come here and uh, collect the food items. We have warm clothes. Uh, we have um, personal hygiene um, items here. And we, ha we are blessed with it, and uh, we want uh, everyone to come who are in need to uh, come to Elspeth Hewitt Center and at least uh, you know get some relief for for the time being until they are able to find employment. And don't forget the website, ehcw.ca. That is ehcw.ca. Buy tickets for the Sip and Support High Tea to kick off International Women's Month and help support uh, this wonderful organization who uh, do such great work in the community and are making a difference in people's lives at Ellsworth Hayward Center for Women, taking place Tuesday, March 5th, the Sip and Support High Tea, along with Sunder Sing Sunder. I guess mere words can't thank you enough for everything you and your staff do, because it's one of those things sometimes we go about our lives and we don't think about how difficult it can be for newcomers. And then you shine a light on it, you're like, we've got to do more. Yes, uh, the, the community needs to come together. You know, we are one great big family and uh, anybody needing help, we have to reach out to them. And, you know, uh, if we do that, we are teaching these young ki kids as well. Uh, you know, uh, helping others is, is a very important thing. And they will never forget, you know, uh, the rest of their lives. And uh, who knows? I mean, they carry on this inspiration and help other people who need help. And this is how we create a very... A positive environment, you know, and a society grows in 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 a healthy way. Sunder, thank you so much, and thank you for enlightening our listeners about what we can do to help. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. Girls Inc. York Region is also celebrating women. Tina Cortez now with the party plans. Barb Wallace is Executive Director of Girls, Inc. of York Region. Welcome to the feed, Barb. Thanks so much for having me, Tina. Tell us about the work of Girls, Inc. Well, Girls, Inc. is a, a nonprofit organization that supports girls and young women. And really what we want to do is strive for all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. Why the need for an organization like this in this day and age? Well, when you look at girls um, and you see the outcomes of after the COVID lockdown, the decrease in mental health um, and the increase in issues, um, kids really struggling with self-esteem, with um, their own setting boundaries, you know, there's human trafficking, and we're here to support girls to really stay on track, stay in school, study those hard STEM subjects, and um, make goals. 
So tell us a little bit more about the programs that Girls Inc. provides. Well, we are currently in 16 schools throughout York Region running programs during the lunch hour on topics such as anti-bullying, how to make and keep friends, um, healthy healthy sexuality, um, and really focusing on health. We also have um, about 30 young women coming to us. We have uh, two um, social workers that work with them to support their mental health, I mean counseling and mental health check-ins. We run um, after-school programs in three schools throughout the, uh, no, three schools plus Georgina Island, um, programs up in throughout Sutton all the way all throughout York Region. And we're running a March break camp. It's coming up in the next few weeks in Newmarket and a leadership camp for high schoolers to come learn about leadership and also get their volunteer hours working with the younger girls by uh, being mentors. Now also coming up is International Women's Day. That's coming up on March 8th. How does Girls Inc. of York Region plan to recognize the day? We are really excited to partner with New Roads Automotive Group up in um, York Region, and they are uh, setting up and running a girls' night out event on March the 7th, which is Thursday night, from 6 until 9. It's at the New Roads Performing Arts Center in Newmarket. And the idea is for women to get together to celebrate um, International Women's Day, and we're going to have an opportunity, um, an activity where we have women give advice, what, what advice would they give to their younger selves. And we also have a special keynote speaker, Zoe Pellier, who's a transformational coach. We have a vendor's market. We have food and drinks, and it's... Uh, As well, we're calling it a pajama party, so you don't even have to get dressed up to come. (laughs) That sounds like fun. Mm -hmm. Now, why are events like these so important? Well, twofold. One, it really helps us raise awareness uh, about girls in the community, because unless you've got got a, a girl in your household or in your family, you might not know or see what's really going on. And it gives us a chance to give back. Um, We're still working on breaking that glass ceiling. It gives successful women a chance to send that elevator down to mentor younger girls and women and really help bring them up. Um, And also it helps us raise much-needed money for speakers, for um, staff, for supplies. It's a really, really great opportunity. Just before I let you go, I did hear about your prom prep program. Tell us about that, and how can our listeners get involved? Well, it's a great opportunity. What we do at Girls Inc. York is we collect graduation and prom dresses, and we support girls for their grade 8 graduation, grade 12 grad, and prom, and we have a a huge event where we 
have music, we have mocktails, we give out uh, dresses, um, accessories, shoes. We have hairdressers there to show them um, and help them teach them how to get their hair ready for their big day. And it's such a great opportunity because as you know, no one would go to prom without a great dress. It's all about the dress and we're able to support well over 100 girls in York Region having the opportunity to go where they might not um, have been able to afford uh, to go without it. Such great work, so, such a great program. I just love it. Oh, thank you so much. And so we are starting to collect dresses um, as early as March 3rd, but all the way through until April 15th. You can drop them off at our office in Newmarket on Queen Street or at Upper Canada Mall. If our listeners want more information about prom prep or about Girls' Night Out next week, how can they contact you? Well, the best way is to go to our website, which is girlsincyork.org. And if you're interested in purchasing tickets for the Girls' Night Out event, it's at newroads.ca slash girlsnight. Sounds great. Happy International Women's Day, Barb, and thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much, Tina. I look forward to hearing from you soon. We turn next to Shaliza Bacchus, raising a glass to Markham's Rouge River Brewing Company. There are so many amazing local businesses right here in York Region, and you actually don't need to travel far from home if you want to try some amazing locally brewed craft beers. Joining me now from Markham's first craft brewery is Kristen McLean, events manager at Rouge River Brewing Company. How are you? Great. Thank you. I'm very excited for our chat today. We are so excited to have you along. And like I said, there are so many amazing local businesses in York Region. And tell me how the brewery got its start. Yeah, so uh, my partner who owns the brewery, Jordan Mills, he started this in 2016. He started brewing in his parents' garage when he was young. Um, he worked for a larger brewery. And then he was determined to try it out himself and start his own brewery. And so we've been having the brewery in operation for about seven years now. I started getting involved a few years ago well, after the pandemic. Um, I can jump into more of those fun details afterwards. But um, more about the brewery is really, we're known for making hazy IPAs. That's how Jordan started. We've loved hazy IPAs. But over the years now, we have a full selection of, brew of beers. So sours, stouts, pilsners, lagers, a great selection, even in seltzers as well. So a little bit of everything for the, the great beer fanatic. That's amazing. I feel like it really and truly does appeal to everyone. And I am a Markham gal through and through, born and raised. And I think this is just so amazing to have something like this so close to home. And I have to ask the question, why Markham? Yeah, that's a great question. And especially because there's not a lot of breweries in Markham. He's been in Markham with his entire family since he was really little. So Markham's always been his home him and I met about five years ago, and then that's when I moved to Markham, and now Markham is definitely a place I call home. It is great. I highly recommend coming for a weekend. You can stay for a weekend, check out the local hotels. There's amazing restaurants. Of course, come to the brewery. 
Absolutely. I definitely second that. And we're going to talk about the pandemic now because you mentioned it before. When the pandemic hit, I can't believe that it's been like basically four years already, but you were pretty much a newer business when the pandemic hit. So how did that affect your business and how did you get through it? Yeah. So the pandemic really forced a lot of small businesses to get creative and really pivot in their business model. So our tap room was closed. You know, we had to think about how do we bring revenue in outside of the tap room, outside of beer sales? Um, how do we connect with our customers? We were able to do that because we are a very small team. Um, we're really flexible. We have full creativity control. And again, our team is just amazing at kind of trying new things and seeing what works. After the pandemic ended, I was working a few bar shifts and just talking with customers. You really heard the feedback was really strong that they were really missing events and that community feel in Markham. And a lot of people were saying to me, you know, they're tired of having to go to the big city to do fun events and live music. So we really sat down as a team and we figured, you know, how can we emphasize Markham and how do we support people so that they don't have to travel all the way to the city, spend a lot of money, you know, on Ubers. And there's a lot of fun things you can do in Markham. And so that's when we really launched off our event programming. And that's when I started to get really involved. My background is in event planning and as well as community placemaking. Placemaking is a really great avenue and concept that I think a lot of breweries are taking on recently. They're becoming those community hubs, those third homes. So it's a place where you don't work, you don't, you're not just staying at home. It's like that place that you want to go to and hang out and do fun things. Love to hear that. And like you said, it's local, close to home for a lot of people, but also even if it's not, there are lots of options to stay around the area. And Kristen, International Women's Day is coming up and the brewery has some amazing events planned. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is officially our second year celebrating uh, International Women's Day as part of the Rouge River Brewery team. Our team is actually 70% females. A lot of our staff are working the bar. They're working the tap room. They are the face of Rouge River Brewery. They're the ones interacting with our customers. And again, what we were hearing is that need and desire to showcase more women in the brewing industry. This is our second year doing it. Last year, we also had our first International Women's Day beer. It was made with pink boot tops, which I highly recommend people to look up. And if you can donate to them, they are doing great things to support women in the beer industry. This year, our International Women's Day beer was designed and chosen by our female team. It's called Girl Dinner. It's for those Nights where you just don't have the energy to make a full dinner. My girl dinner last week was shrimp and crackers because I was just so busy. There's a lot on our plates as females, you know, work and caregivers and supporters, businesswomen. So it was a tribute to that. It is a grapefruit sour, which one of our bartenders, Heather, she has been wanting and desiring this special beer for so long and she's been with us on our team uh, even before me so it was really a, a great opportunity to say thank you Heather for all that you do there are a lot of great female breweries and brewers out there like Aveling, Red Tape, Waterloo, Granite definitely support those female brewers and owners so for us it's 
We don't make the beer, but we work that bar, we work that brewery. We are part of the brewery industry. It's about ensuring that, you know, you get your female team involved, support them, show them respect, show them space and opportunities to learn more about beer and like we did, get to choose a beer that best represents us. So very excited about that launch. It is now available. We got too excited and we couldn't contain it until March 8th. So it is now available online. You can order or come into our tap room. And with that, we're launching a full month of programs where we have live music every Friday from seven to nine. We have Courtney Bowles, Francesca Panetta, Raquel, Shannon Bearsford, all playing every Friday. We have vendor pop-ups every Friday from 5 to 9 p.m. Those have been great. It's Brew on Route, which is coffee, quirky hippie decor, Christy Jewelry, Christina Cooks, Triple Baked, Head to Toe. So all these amazing females in our community that we've worked with previously and that we are showcasing them and highlighting them, especially for International Women's Day. We also have food pop-ups by Pig and Chick, Juicy and Pinatas, Eat Live Love Group. And again, these are all female-owned and or managed businesses. So it's really, really exciting to see this huge campaign come together for all of March. That is absolutely amazing. And I, I love the whole women supporting other women. And I do want to backtrack a little bit to something you just said. You know, we're talking about your brewery right now, but you still shouted out other breweries because they are also female-owned and run by females as well. So I think that just proves that there is space for all of us. Definitely. Yeah. When we support each other as females, we can go further. It's, it's hard enough in this male-dominated industry. So when us females can stick together and shout out and highlight each other, you know, that just makes us stronger together. Love that. Love that so much. And Kristen, if our listeners want to get some information on the brewery, find you on social media and maybe attend one or all of the International Women's Day events, how can we do that? So definitely check out our website, Rouge River Brewery. Um, we're also online, Facebook, Instagram, Rouge River Brewery. We're not on TikTok because I have not mastered that yet. You do not want to see me dancing on TikTok. <laughs> but yeah, definitely our heaviest social media is on uh, Instagram. And that, again, allows us to really highlight and tag all of our amazing collaborators and partners, not just for International Women's Day, but throughout the year on our website. On the right on the main page, it shows you all of the details for our events. Kristen McLean from Rouge River Brewing Company. Thank you so much for joining us and happy International Women's Day. Thank you. You too. All the best. Thank you so much for this. Invest in women. Accelerate progress. International Women's Day 2024 on 1059 The Region. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.